Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I catch up with Emre and Isaac from O1 Labs. They share an update on the MENA protocol, cover the launch, and look at how the network has evolved since then. We also touch on the organizations that have built MENA and how O1 Labs is experimenting with a new employee-run structure. Lastly, and importantly, we dig into SNAPs, that is SNARK-powered dApps on the MENA network. But before we start in, I want to share with you a very exciting event that we are putting together this fall. ZK Validator and the Zero Knowledge Podcast bring you ZK Hack a multi-round online event with workshops and puzzle-solving competitions. The ZK Hack offers ZK enthusiasts and practitioners a space to learn more about ZK, while also giving advanced cryptographers and hackers a challenging competition to try their hand at. Think hackathon meets CTF meets dark forest round-based competition, but all focused on ZK tech. And this is supported by our puzzle-building partners, Alio and Enoma, as well as gold sponsors and workshop hosts, Aztec, IDEN3, O1 Labs, and Starkware. This event will be running every Tuesday starting October 26th for seven weeks. We knew we could not cram this all into two days. Um, if you're interested in participating in one or many of these workshops or puzzle competitions, do head over to the website now. I've added the link in the show notes. If you sign up, you'll be reminded about updates as well as getting info about the actual workshops as they're happening. I also want to thank this week's sponsor, C-Labs. The C-Labs folks wanted me to let you know about Optics, a new cross-chain project. Optics uses optimistic or optimistic-ish replication of data structures to send messages, tokens, and data between chains and rollups. The Optics-powered token bridge supports bridging ERC-20 tokens between any network it is deployed on. No pesky multi-hop bridging to get where you want to go. One send and it's done. The team has recently deployed Optics on Ethereum, Celo, and Polygon mainnets. While it's still in DGEN beta, you can still use it today via Etherscan. Give it a try. And if you're interested in building a cross-chain application, maybe an NFT bridge using Optics communication channels, or if you're just very opinionated about which new chains or rollups should be supported by Optics, do reach out to them via GitHub discussions or join the Discord. I've added the link in the show notes. Now, most importantly, they are also hiring Rust and Solidity engineers who would be interested in building out the future of interoperability in crypto. If this sounds like you, you may want to apply. So thank you again, C-Labs. Now, here is my interview all about Mina and Snaps with Isaac and Emre. This week, I'm here with Emre Tekeshalp and Isaac Meckler from O1 Labs. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Yeah, happy to be here. Isaac, you've been on the show before. You, I think this might actually be your third time on the Zero Knowledge podcast. The last time you were on was January 2020. And it feels like a million years ago, actually. It's crazy. It was a totally different sort of era. Um, not only like a different era in the world, but a very different era for Mina, which at the time was called Coda. So yeah, at the time you were running test nets for like six months. There was a growing community. There were people running nodes, but it was still like it was still a ways off from from becoming like a live network. You were figuring out governance. We talked about some interesting use cases, and yeah, since then the network has launched. So, how are you feeling? What's new? Yeah, well, it's funny. I don't know if you mind. Maybe I'll just recall kind of a funny anecdote, crypto anecdote of January 2020. I remember going to the Stanford Blockchain Conference which was in January, 2020. Yeah. And it was like, people weren't sure like how seriously to take COVID or whatever. And I was like, yeah, what COVID, like, eh, what is that? You know? And I, I remember there were a lot of people from China who were, who were there and who were like, uh, they could see the future kind of joking. Like <laughs> they were like, Oh, like, you know, you guys should like, I wouldn't eat the food or, you know, whatever. So anyway, yeah, it was definitely a very different time when I think back to, what we've kind of been through with mainnet since then. I feel like we definitely went through the most painful parts before we launched the mainnet, which is great. Mm -hmm. as, we, as you mentioned, we were running testnets for a long time. And there were periods of, you know, 
really painful debugging and problems and whatever, but things have been relatively smooth on mainnet itself. You know, feels pretty good, I guess. Good. Emre, this is the first time you're actually on the Zero Knowledge Podcast. We should get to know you a little bit. What are you doing? What maybe has changed for you over the last, yeah, since January 2020 and your role at MENA? Yeah, super excited to be here. One of the fans. You know, I don't know how many episodes I've listened to, but always a fan and <laughs> great to be here. Um, let's see. Yeah, so I am currently the interim CEO of O1 Labs, and we can get into the interim part a bit later with kind of the transitions that we're going through. Um, and I joined the team uh, a little over two years ago. So I joined to help lead our business dev and general business efforts. And before that, I was at Coinbase, also doing similar business dev work. Um, well, not too similar, nothing to do with Snarks, but uh, all sorts of crypto stuff, as you might imagine. So, been, you know, been around for a while, but um yeah, it was funny. Like when I, I think we launched our first testnet the week I joined, or maybe the week after. Uh, so it was like you know super exciting for the team, obviously for me as well. But you know I would have been excited no matter what we were doing. Yeah. And then yeah, as Izzy said, it it was quite a bit of a grind, and I, I felt like it's it's a very thin line between like oh my god, like if all these issues are coming up on testnet, like how much more is there going to be during mainnet versus you know. <laughs> We're actually doing coming up with all the issues now such that there isn't any on mainnet. So, you know, fortunately so far, we've been kind of closer to the latter one and that feels good. Can you share with me what launching the network felt like or was either of you kind of like, what was that process like? Because this happened, I mean, is it now six months ago or so? Yeah, that it happened? almost exactly six months ago. Wow. Yeah. So tell me about that process. Like, what was it like? Um, when people ask me this question, I kind of say it's kind of like launching your first product, doing an IPL and growing your company like a thousand <laughs> times in size all at the same time. Like it's a crazy <laughs> endeavor. I hope I never get to do this again. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm saying that in the best way because it's obviously like it was a lot of excitement and a lot of um, a huge feat um, on, on all of our team um, and, and all of our community, right? Because it was also like we jumped on this call as the network was being launched, like as the first block was scheduled, and it was all like more community members than O1 Labs team members. And um, they were the ones who produced the first blocks. And, you know, still like we don't run any block producers. Um, it's very community managed. So, yeah, it was it was crazy. <laughs> it's crazy, I think, is one word to summarize. <laughs> Isaac, from your perspective, having worked on this for many years leading up to this launch, what was it like? It was definitely, um, the actual launch itself was, I think, emotionally kind of weird for me. I mean, just, it was kind of surreal to be, I guess, on that call and, like, see all these people who, you know, were, like, so invested in, many of whom I had no, like, I didn't know at all, and I don't know. But I think sometimes when, when you accomplish something that you had sort of intended to for a, a long time, there can often be a feeling of, uh, a sort of surprising feeling of, like, emptiness. <laughs> oh, no. Just because, the anticlimactic... No launch <laughs> yeah just be just because you sort of um i think you have you know desire can kind of never really be fulfilled so <laughs> you know you have this image that you sort of help hold down in front of your yourself but it's not you can never achieve it so yeah. I, I think that was probably a little strange i was also in los angeles at the time which i really don't like and fills me also with this sort of a spiritual emptiness <laughs> so i think that probably contributed to it but I always really enjoy like uh, when there's kind of, you know, like a spirit of camaraderie and all hands on deck kind of situation, which in the days leading up, you know, there was and, you know, late nights getting everything just set up just so. So I always enjoy that. So that that was fun. But, Did you have any sense of relief? Oh, definitely. Maybe that was the emptiness almost. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think it probably has something to do with LA too, but yeah, fair. especially since, you know, I feel kind of responsible for at the end of the day, the correctness of some of the crypto, you know, some of the cryptography involved. So for everything to be working smoothly is for the last six months, especially has definitely been a huge relief. So in this episode, the goal is to, you know, catch us up on what's going on in the media universe, O1 Labs, the creation of the foundation. I want to talk about snaps. That's, I think, one of the key things that I want to cover. I do want to share a quick note about some of the connections that I have, or this podcast basically has with Mina already. I am an advisor to O1 Labs. I work with you, Emre, and the team on the community side of things. 
Owen Labs is a sometimes sponsor of the show, but just note, this episode is in no way sponsored. In case people are wondering, I never do paid episodes. I interview the people I find interesting, and I think there's something to actually explore here with Snaps. Uh, ZK Validator is currently running a block producer on Mina. Yeah, and as part of our contribution to the Mina network, ZKV has even started contributing tools. I wanted to do a quick shout out because there's this Mina VRF RS tool built by Kobe Gherkin and Chris Lynn within the ZKV umbrella that I've not had a chance to talk about it yet uh, on the show. So yeah, personally, I'm pretty engaged with the project and I wanted to share all this, but at the same time, I want to kind of like give people a heads up. As involved as we are, there's actually some parts of the MENA project, specifically SNAPS, that I don't know very much about and would really like to dig into. Um, in fact, I feel a little bit like I should know more. I hope that through this interview, I can find out more and also share it with the audience. But yeah, so we've kind of like given a little bit of a history up to the launch, but there's been a lot of changes. So please, let's maybe start with the org. Let's talk a little bit about MENA and O1 Labs and the foundation. How does this organization now look? And yeah, what's what's happened since, maybe even since launch? Actually, when did the foundation come out? Was it before or after? Both. <laughs> it's been a it's been a you know long work <laughs> in progress, and um, I forget now when we kind of announced it, but it was um, it should have been right before launch. Yeah. So to your point, Mina is an open source project that's community managed. Um, yet, you know, it, it has to have um, both a legal structure around it um, to hold certain assets and be responsible of, uh, you know, some of its doings and some of its um, actions. But also, you know, there's a lot of coordination that needs to happen. Um, so like many other blockchain projects, we thought it would, you know, be in the best interest of the, of the whole project to essentially start a new nonprofit foundation. Um, it's actually a, a public benefit corporation here in the U.S., to um, really, you know, take this whole ecosystem forming, whether it's about grants making or community management or certain marketing related items, or again, certain legal items, um, and really house them in this um, nonprofit foundation that's very transparent and um, nonprofit. So some members of the original O1 Labs team basically um, departed to start off the foundation. So. Evan, who was the original CEO and co-founder um, of O1 Labs, is now the CEO of Mina Foundation. Um, also, sir, several members of our marketing team and legal team left to really bootstrap it. We're also super fortunate to have a very um, experienced board um, at the foundation, With, um, in addition to Evan, uh, with Josh Cincinnati, former director of Zcash yeah, Foundation. sometimes co-host of the Zero Knowledge podcast, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah lots of familiar faces. Um, Jill Carlson, who's also been in this space for a long time. And has been an advisor to yes. us in the past as well, as well as Tess Rainierson from uh, Cosmos or um, the Interchain Foundation. So, yeah, it's a stellar group of folks and they're really, you know, um, starting to get up to the ground and really do some amazing stuff with, um, you know, all the all the huge ecosystem that's forming around the project. And on the O1 Lab side, we remain a, you know, a major contributor to the project. Obviously, we incubated the project, uh, but... At this point, we're one of um, three, actually, contributors, um, engineering contributors. Obviously, there's many more types of contributors, but engineering contributors to the project. And, you know, although obviously we're doing a lot of many, many different stuff, our, our focus um, is slowly shifting to become all about snaps. So I'll save the details there um, to, you know, to when we start going into snaps. But yeah, our, our mission is to really like enable this um, adoption and use case proliferation on top of the project because as interesting and unique and exciting, you know, many things as Mina is by, by lieu of its unique design as a, as a layer one, none of that really matters if you don't have you know, usage on top of the platform. And, and that's our main mission. Totally. You just mentioned that there were some other teams also building. Is this like dev shops, like a dev team building core infrastructure along with you or different implement implementations? What, who are those other teams basically and what are they doing? It, it depends. So the second team is Chainsafe. The audience might know them. Um, Chainsafe also contributes to various other exciting projects. Um, for us, they're working on a new Rust-based client that's also going to become a what we call a browser node implementation, which is like the, you know, basically taking the Mina today and taking apart everything but the full node, which is like the 22 kilobyte piece, right? Which is the whole um, vision of Mina. 
that's already there in our current software, but it's just, you know, strapped in together with everything else. So it just needs to be cleaned up a bit. Um, so that's what they're working on. The third contributor, I'm actually unsure if it's yet announced. It's been signed very recently, uh, but they're also, you know, very experienced, let's say, all camel shop, which is the, the, the language our client is written in. So, yeah, they're basically, you know, decentralizing both um, software and node development for Mina, as well as adding new features as well. Cool. And how is O1 Labs now like running itself? You sort of mentioned your interim CEO. Is there, yeah, maybe you can explore a little bit what, what the plan is there. Yeah, maybe I'll give you a high level and then um, Isaac can go over the details given um, he, he and Evan have been thinking about this for a long time. So um, we're, we're changing our governance structure. Um, so we, O1 Labs is a for-profit, you know, Delaware Corp, your, your traditional startup, let's say, based in San Francisco. Although now we're fully remote, so that that no longer is the case. Mm. Um, and you know, we we had a very traditional board structure and voting rights, you know, in a traditional way, whatnot. And um, we decided to, to take advantage of this transition with the foundation splitting apart um, to also take a look at our governance structure and see how we can make it more sustainable and also more true to the ethos of the entire crypto space we're in. So we, we, we're becoming almost there, like officially, um, an employee-governed structure. And I'll let Isaac maybe go through the details of it a bit more. Yeah, that's, I think, a good intro. I would just add, like, um, the motivation, at least for me, you know, in spearheading or, like, kind of pushing for this new structure is really the idea that, like, in our world, like, you're you're not free unless you have control over what's required for your own continued existence, right? So like most people in a sense are not really free in, in that they're dependent on their employer or, or, or whatever for their continued existence or an employer. Mm-hmm. And so my, you know, my sincere hope is to create a new kind of society in which that's not the case, in which, you know, everyone is free in the sense of not, you know, being able to just re- reproduce the conditions of their own life and existence. And also to create the world that, in the way that they kind of see fit, you know, not just sort of being the the tool to be used by someone else. That was my own personal uh, interest in pushing for this. And of course, like such a project is like a society-wide project. It's not something that can happen in one company or, or anything like that. But my hope is that, you know, it, this will kind of create experiences and structures that maybe can have some kind of ripple effect over time. And specifically, I mean, in terms of just how it's structured, I can just say a few words. So basically, the formal structure is as follows. Like everyone who works at Owen Labs who has been working there for more than a year is like considered a member. Okay. And essentially, the membership elects the board of the company and the board elects the CEO, um, as well as like ratifies kind of major decisions related to the running of the company. Um, And so the, the board itself like consists of employees, members. Um, and is democratically elected by, by the employees. So mm. it's sort of real kind of self-governance in, in that sense. In terms of like the day-to-day decision-making, I think that's still a little bit to be worked out, um, how exactly elements of democratic control can be injected into that, but that's for the future, I guess. Are there any models that you were kind of looking to when you were thinking about this? Is there any companies or structures that we know about? Yeah, I think for pretty clear reasons, most people who start companies don't want to pursue such a direction because of the desire to retain control and so on. But there are many uh, examples outside of the technology space, but then there are a few even in tech and in crypto space. So like, I I guess I can just point at some in, in the crypto space in particular. So there's one called informal systems who work on Cosmos, I think primarily, I'm not exactly sure how they're structured, but I know they have some kind of democratic governance. Emery, were you going to say something about that? Sure. Yeah, they're they're somewhat similar. They've also innovated a bit more with their shareholder structure, as far as I can remember as well. But um, we we decided to start with keeping things simple. So as as an example, we have, you know, similar shareholders and employees are shareholders. And uh, one of the benefits is that employees get to own a larger portion of the company than they would, you know, in your classical startup. Um, so we've, you know, we've worked out a few models to basically share more of the company with the employees because like they're the ones who spend their 
days, hopefully not a lot of nights, but usually days to, you know, basically create some value and, and create new new products and services. So um, it, it just makes sense to us. There's a whole lot of uh, smaller businesses that operate this way. I, I live in Berkeley and uh, Berkeley is very famous for having a lot of cooperatives for some reason. I, I'm not sure why. I guess uh, maybe ex-hippies or something. Mm. Um, so like if for, for, for Berkeley residents, you know, you might be familiar with like, or even the Bay, like RS Mendy or Cheeseboard, um, or, you know, there's like a skate shop that's a co-op. So there's lots of like kind of small, you know, non-tech businesses that are, are run this way. There's also large companies that are that are run this way. There's a really famous one called um, Mondragon, which is in Spain. They they do sort of, I think, you know, it's, it's manufacturing. They manufacture all kinds of different things. Um, they have, I think, a few thousand employees. To me, it makes sense, though, like there's so many experimentations with decentralization on the networks, and yet companies tend to just take up pretty traditional company structures. And it seems sort of, in a weird way, antithetical, like it's, it's, you're putting a regular old company together with something so novel. Yeah, I, I think the rhetoric of uh, people in the space often contradicts the, the reality of control and, and ownership. You know, there's a lot of rhetoric about democratization and community control and so on. But that's pretty frequently the reality. There's usually a few, you know, large players uh, who can, you know, will control most of these projects or anyway. Hmm. How big is the team actually today? So today the O1 Labs team is 25 of employees. Oh, that's a nice size. Yeah, it's, it's a nice cozy size. Yeah, large enough. And then the foundation has another uh, 13, 15 people. Okay. So overall full time, you know, there's about 40. Um, but obviously, you know, a lot of community members are, I wouldn't say full time, but, you know, spending a lot of hours on doing very super valuable stuff. Like there's so many tools that are developed by community members. Um, so if you add it all up, it adds up. <laughs> nice. To any listeners who are either founders of companies, you know, to whom this is an interesting idea. I don't know if there will be any people like that. Or more likely, probably employees at companies to which, you know, controlling your own uh, destiny, so to speak, at your organization sounds appealing. Please don't hesitate to get in touch with me. You can DM me on Twitter. IZMeckler is my handle, so get in touch. Cool. Are you looking to sort of spread the word, get more teams thinking about this? Well, yeah. I mean, as I said, it's sort of, for me, part of a, a larger um, desire to see a broader transformation in society. So if anyone is interested in pursuing that, I'm very happy to share what I can. Cool. So one thing we haven't yet done on the show, I'm realizing now, is really define what MENA is. I've kind of, we've started in with a bit of an assumption that people had listened to previous episodes, but if they hadn't, I think it makes sense for us to do like a quick primer. We've been talking about the MENA protocol. We talk about O1 Labs, the MENA Foundation. But let's go back to that protocol. What What is MENA? What does it do? How is it different? Yeah, and then I want to talk about SNAPS. So MENA today is a proof-of-stake blockchain that has the, the novel feature that um, it's a succinct blockchain. And what that basically means is there's a really small amount of data so in all the marketing materials, it's 20, they say 22 kilobytes. It's actually less than that. Oh, cool. But there's a really small amount of data that, that anyone you know, can download something on the order of 22 kilobytes, let's say, which will enable one to sort of verify the entire history of all the transactions um, and all the blocks that have occurred in the chain so far. And what this means is basically uh, you're, everyone in the network, as far as like interacting with the shared state of, of the chain goes is on kind of equal footing. There's no need to kind of delegate trust to like, you know, miners st slash stakers or like a block explorer, God forbid, or anything like that as, you know, um, is usually done. Mina going forward will be that plus a, a platform basically for private scalable applications and which we call snaps. And we'll, mm -hmm. we'll get into that later in the show. I don't know, Emery, if there's anything you want to add there. Maybe another, like there's two perspectives to look at, Mina. One of the, one of which is what, how Izzy just covered it, like the genesis of it and how it's evolving. And I think another is all blockchains at the end of the day are like these shared state layers, right? Um, they're universally accessible state layers. 
most of them are optimized in, in one direction or not, like Bitcoin is only for transfers, Ethereum is for all smart contract transactions, I don't know, Solana is for super fast transactions. I think one thing we're discovering is like, as zero knowledge proof systems are better understood, as their features, you know, for snarks and what, what have you, are in, more in demand, Mina becomes like this um, super, you know, based on what we know, the most efficient zero knowledge proof state layer out there. Because, you know, if you look at Ethereum, et cetera, those are not efficient in verifying zero knowledge proofs. Um, it just becomes super expensive. Whereas Mina is, you know, born into zero knowledge proofs, like it's made of zero knowledge proofs. So it becomes like this um, super efficient um, native zero knowledge proof layer, state layer that we're seeing a lot of demand for. And nowadays, as Izzy mentioned, the, the, its use case is becoming this privacy layer for basically the entire crypto space. When you mentioned, Isaac, the 22 kilobyte, I know, and you said maybe it's smaller, that is a proof, right? That is a snark proof. Yeah, yeah. So that's basically just to kind of elaborate a little bit. At any point in time, there is like the current state of the chain, right? Which is like, all the information that's required for like checking consensus stuff, like how long is the chain and some proof of stake related data. Um, and then like the, basically the database of accounts, you know, we call, we'll call that like the, the blockchain state. That on Mina is accompanied by a little proof, which is a snark that um, basically says, you know, there is a blockchain that, you know, when you run through it, like ends up in with this blockchain state. And so uh, the only kind of big thing in this whole picture is the database of accounts. And that's like represented in the blockchain state that a light full node or whatever you want to call it would receive. Um, that would be represented just as the Merkle root of that database of accounts. Okay. So if you want to know anything about, about the state, you basically get this little blockchain state, the accompanying proof that says, hey, this really is like a valid blockchain state. And then, you know, you can get Merkle paths to see whatever you want to see about the current state. And do the, are those both in that thing that is downloaded, like those two things, the Merkle root and the proof? Is that kind of the one thing that's under 22 kilobytes? Exactly, exactly. Okay, cool. So when it comes to the snark proofs themselves, though, who makes those? Like, where, where are those coming from? So there's sort of two network participants who kind of co-construct these proofs. Every, every time a block is produced, um, the block producers sort of take the old proof corresponding to the old chain and kind of, you know, extend it by one to build the proof corresponding to the next chain. But that proof, at least initially, that the block producer kind of extends by one, it doesn't contain all of the transactions that happened right in that block. There's a little bit of a, of a kind of a, a delay in which all the transactions from, you know, that block will then be kind of compressed into a proof and then again, uh, folded back in. And the work of taking all of the transactions um, and compressing them into proofs, which are then kind of folded in to this like chain proof, um, that's performed by other nodes on the network that we usually refer to as snark workers. Mm -hmm. And that's like in a you know anyone can do that. It's permit. It's not permissioned. Um, and and basically they earn fees for doing this work of compressing the transactions. Cool. The reason I wanted to ask about that is because now I want to talk a little bit about snaps. So everything we've covered so far, I think we may have even mentioned somewhere on previous episodes, but, well, everything we've talked about, Mina at least. But now going forward, Snaps. Like you mentioned, it's a platform for private applications that work on the Mina network. But what are they actually? Yes. So the basic setup is like this. So basically, there will be a new kind of account called a Snap account. Okay. And unlike on say Ethereum where you know the code of the smart contract is stored fully in, in that account in snaps on Mina only the verification key corresponding to that contract will be stored in the account and so this is like a small piece of data that you can kind of think of as like a hash of the code corresponding to the contract when you say verification key though you're are you talking in the snark context of like prover verifier yeah okay Basically, the programmer will like write their smart contract, mm -hmm. and that will kind of get compiled into a verification key, which is kind of like a hash of the whole contract, and that's what will actually get stored on chain. All right, but it's interesting you don't you don't call it a proof. This is the verification key. Yeah, it's it's like a hash of the, the contract. Would proofs be like 
sent to that verification key. And that's where the contract is like making sure like the interaction is, is it that way where it's like the verification key lives in the contract? Yeah. So the verification key lives on chain. And then when like a user wants to interact with that contract, they will basically create a proof corresponding to that verification key. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, they'll send a transaction that has that proof attached to it, to the chain. And that'll kind of get checked against the verification key in that account. And it'll say, hey, did the user like basically run this contract correctly? And actually, as you say this, this is similar, like a ZK rollup is doing something similar, right? The smart contract is holding the verification and a proof is submitted to it, I believe. Yeah, it's it's similar. Yeah, it's similar in that okay. sense. Cool, cool. So I guess just to kind of go back to how a developer, let's say, actually programs a snap and then like how a user actually interacts with it. So basically, uh, we're developing a set of tools based on a library that so we've long had this library, Snarky, um, which is an OCaml library for like writing zero-knowledge proof systems and that we use in Mina. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've, you know, kind of against my naive hopes, no one really likes writing OCaml. So <laughs> yeah. um, now we have a new library called Snarky.js, which is basically a TypeScript um, library that provides a similar functionality to, to Snarky, but in a much more user-friendly way because it's just TypeScript. Mm-hmm. And so the developer writes their their smart contract using TypeScript, using Snarky.js. And as I said, the contracts aren't really run on chain. Like executions are verified on chain, but the contracts themselves are not really run on chain. What happens is the developer like writes their uh, contract using Snarky.js. It gets compiled into some JavaScript, which is quite portable. It, the, all the crypto is using Wasm. So it runs in the browser. You, know, you can run it on a server using Node. Um, it's actually really, I, I'm, I'm really proud of, of how easy it, it is to set up. It's just like you NPM install Snarky.js and then you're off to the races. And basically users will use that kind of JavaScript bundle corresponding to the contract to, to interact with the contract essentially. Um, and then to generate proofs of their interaction with the contract, which then get verified on chain and applied to the Mina blockchain state. Okay. Yeah, it's basically like, so part of the contract executed, this is happening off chain, but the way that you're kind of doing validity proofs or some like proving that those have happened correctly is through the mechanism you just described. Yes, exactly. So like all the contract execution, basically most of it happens off chain, which is how you can enable privacy as well, because like sensitive data doesn't need to be submitted to the chain. Private user data doesn't need to be submitted to the chain in order for the chain to know that the contract was executed correctly because you're providing this proof of the correctness of the execution. And the only thing that's written on chain, like you wouldn't be able to like see the thing that's written on chain and then like deduce what had actually been executed. It's just that you know that that execution happened correctly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because of the the magic of zero knowledge. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the things that I want to understand about snaps, though, is there's, I mean, at least in the way that I've understood it, is this connection between like real world data and the MENA protocol and the and the smart contracts. What where is that happening? What does that mean? And maybe we can even take an example. Maybe you have like a a use case that will help us understand this a bit better. So if you zoom out a bit, right, um, one of the issues in the blockchain space today is that there's no really easy and prolific way to import data, right, from the rest of the internet, from the like the Web 2.0 world that we, the 99% of the world uses um, into Web 3, into the crypto land. Perhaps the only way to do that is using oracles, right? But those are very rudimentary solutions where, you know, there's an intermediary, a set of intermediaries that only, you know, stream a specific set of data. And this causes a lot of problems because um, A, people, exist in the real world, like in the real internet or the web two internet. Um, and then, you know, they, they can't like start from scratch. Not everyone can start from scratch. Not everyone is the nerds that we all are, right? Like we like to dig into everything. So there, there needs to be this easy link. Um, and as we were thinking through this problem, you know, again, through the magic of zero knowledge and other cryptography, what we stumbled upon was that, hold on a second all the modern websites are HTTPS. They're all cryptographically signed. And that is a computation, right? So that can be snark, basically. Mm. So what we've come up with is, uh, and you know, we're improving upon it as a protocol, uh, which is going to be a library within our SNAPS SDK stack. 
where you can basically prove that any data exists on any website, as long as it's HTTPS, right? And that any user individual can prove that the data is legitimate, along with the type of computation or fact-checking that they want to run on it, right? The private computation that Isaac just talked about, um, and then share that onto Mina. So basically, you don't have to resort to any oracles, or you know, you're not limited with you know whatever data the oracles are streaming. So you can grab any data from any website and share it privately. I kind of see it as a, you know, those in the U.S. might be more familiar, but like a private plaid for everything, right? Like if you think of this plaid, the service mm. that you know in the U.S. we're all stuck with, where you have to use to link your bank, and it only works with banks. And Platt sees all your private information, all your financial like banking statements, and so does you know whomever they're linking it to. Uh, with this, you know, there's no intermediary. You're using the magic of your knowledge, and you're able to share all that information privately to the service provider that want that you want to use. Mm. So that's at at a very high level. Uh, maybe Isaac can speak a bit more onto how how it actually happens. Yeah, I, and I will also just want to stress like two things about what you said. So like, the first thing is it differs from existing things, as Emery was saying, in that it's really easy to import from any existing data source. You don't have to like make a new Oracle or whatever, as long as it's like on the web, you know, on HTTPS, which pretty much everything is. And then the second is it's possible to use this data without like having to reveal it publicly. Because like normally any kind of Oracle data would be operating in an on-chain context where it has to be revealed publicly for the contract to use it. But, it, you know, with snaps, um, and we're calling it this kind of functionality web snaps because like the smart contract execution is happening locally. You don't have to post that data publicly anywhere. There had been an example that had been floated to me by someone else who was explaining or trying to explain snaps to me, which was this idea of like GitHub commits as a potential source. Would this be something possible? Like you sort of said it's HTTPS, but is it sort of like any public record that is in a browser that's provable could be incorporated into this? If you wanted, you could be like, I have an NFT, like maybe you have a smart contract that, that like mints an NFT corresponding to GitHub commits that are longer than 5,000 lines or something like that, you know, whatever. Um, so that's, if you wanted to do that, you could do it. <laughs> it does allow for many, you know, interesting novel use cases though. Like some might be just hacky, interesting, fun things like what, what you just mentioned on GitHub commits or... You know, like if a Reddit vote or Reddit post receives a certain number of upvotes, you can mint a commemorative NFT or whatever, right? It's because anything, you know, anything you see on a, on a website is possible to be linked. Or there's, you know, more, uh, let's say, serious examples as well. One uh, proof of concept that we released um, earlier on was um, with an Ethereum dApp called, um, in the DeFi space, called Teller. Um, and they're tr trying to do unsecured lending. And we were able to basically link the credit score of, of any user um, on Credit Karma, which is, again, a you know popular um, credit score checking website in the North America. And, you know, you can only you can grab your data from Credit Karma. By the way, we never talked to Credit Karma like it wasn't like they needed to set up a special API for us or anything. It, it just it just works. And, um, you know, you prove that your credit score is above a certain threshold and you share that proof with uh, with Teller. Um, and they verify it. So, you know, they don't see your social security number. They don't see your actual credit score. Um, they just get this proof that a, a source that they trust, which in this case is Credit Karma, because many people trust them, has shared that your credit score is above, let's say, 700. But sky's the limit because, you know, this is infinitely programmable. Emery, in the example you just gave, is there any sort of NFT of this in there? Isaac, you had sort of mentioned NFTs a few times. And I'm just wondering if it's like, if there's an NFT of some action, is that helpful or does that like super not matter? It's just like something that it could be a mechanism to use it. Could be. We actually haven't like really like NFTs, you know, it's like hype cycle. So now we have to think about <laughs> NFTs, I guess. But um, yeah, it's, <laughs> okay. it's not like a, it's definitely not a core part of the system. Um, you could, you know, and, and I'm sure developers will come up with cool ways to make the system better thanks to NFT like structures. Um, but it's not like a requirement or anything. Do you also see, I mean, you talk about web data, and, and maybe this is sort of ridiculous, but would you also be able to use this for other networks, for other blockchains? Or is there like no point in doing that because those are public ledgers that are already like shared? No, you could. You could. It's, it's actually, there's some pretty cool use cases in this. Uh, like our team has been working on a lot of, you know, like cool demos. One of them, for example, is like, 
let's say a, a exclusive, you know, messaging boards for people that only um, own Bitcoin or who can prove that they own Bitcoin before, I don't know, 2014, right? Or, you know, if you own a CryptoPunk, um, but, and, and, the, and in these instances, you don't have to share your address, right? So, you, you know, even if you owned, you know, 0.01 Bitcoin, you, know, you can hang out in the same per- club with the person who owns, I don't know, 10,000 Bitcoin. Oh, wow. Because you're, you're not sharing your address. You're only cl- proving that you own Bitcoin before a certain date or you have more than an X amount of Bitcoin or, or Ethers, right? Because, again, you're just proving that a certain cryptography, in this case, the signing of, of a public key with a private key, is legitimate. And then on the flip side, there's an interesting, not to take too many places, but there's an interesting flip side to this. If you go back to the genesis of Mina, which is the succinct blockchain, um, the core premise, not only does it enable anyone you know, joining the Mina network as a full node from your browser, smartphone, whatever, but... Uh, other blockchains are also computers. So other blockchains can also join Mina as a full node. Um, so this creates the possibility for these trustless bridges where um, an Ethereum dApp or you know, Polkadot, Solana, what, whatever, they can all be running full node verifiers of Mina within their chain as a smart contract. And dApps on Ethereum, such as Teller, right, um, can be monitoring that smart contract for state updates to Mina and basically um, grab the snap verification of whatever data that they're trying to verify on Mina and basically use Mina as an add-on to their application. So it's not like to benefit from this, developers have to move their entire application over, you know, have to deal with this very complex and strategic decision. It's just an add-on. So we, we only see this as a value adds to the entire space and basically as this gateway, right, between, you know, the Web2 data and Web3 um, services. Yeah, this is interesting. I actually want to talk about bridges a little bit more. But before we do that, I actually want to talk, I, I sort of want to just go over what we just covered this idea that like, you're taking any cryptographic action proof or something. And you're actually able to use whatever it describes without revealing what it describes in a snap for some other action. So I think the one you just said is like, you have some cryptographic thing that allows you in a club you can prove that you have that thing without revealing what you actually have, where your address is, the amounts or whatever. And that through a snap, it would like allow, like the snap itself would be like the club maker and you'd be allowed into it. I don't know. Maybe it's a very vague example, but that's really cool. I don't know. For me, that sort of, I, I, I think it is the first time that I'm actually understanding snaps. <laughs> I have tried to, to get into it before. So I'm really glad um, if, if I got it right. I think I got it right. Right. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. It's, yeah. yeah, clubs are not the only use case, but uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think like a lot of the quote unquote use cases which have been perpetuated so far have been kind of limited to either, you know, fantasy realms of game related things or fantasy realms of financial speculation because there's no nothing to refer to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, everything has to only refer to things within the system. So it's kind of uh, not very meaningful in a sense. Mm-hmm. So this will kind of open the door to just bring in all, all of this like existing meaning in, in some sense and, and meaningful data to operate on. So at first, when I heard about this, this idea of like bringing Web2 stuff in, and I, I don't know that it is in any way re- a reference to this, but is it at all like a Wayback Machine where you can like, it sort of proves something at a certain time that at a certain time, something was true. Is there any, for some reason it was this idea of like, like logging HTTPS, like somehow like proving that it existed made me think of this way back machine, but am I totally off base? Is there any connection there? It It is like that. It's like, you know, it's kind of like an authenticate, like a, a verifiable screenshot. Okay. You know, okay. so it's like, you might want to like, use some fact, right? So you'd be like, hey, like, I got an email from, uh, I don't know, who's a famous person? The president emailed me. Okay, and you're like, no, 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 I don't believe you. So then I would be like, oh, yeah, no, really, the president emailed me. Here's a screenshot to prove it, right? But it's like, okay, well, a screenshot, you know, I know, I know how to use Photoshop, I'm sure you do, too. You know, you can you can do that yourself. But actually, you already kind of have the data in hand to really prove that the president really, well, Email is kind of a special case, but uh, let's say Twitter DM'd you or something. Okay. Because y- you you have this TLS transcript that you know comes from a trusted source. Like 
probably you're not able to like go in Twitter and like edit their database of DMs. You know what I mean? So uh, you actually have this cryptographic data uh, of the, the TLS transcript, which is sort of like a cryptographic screenshot that then you can uh, wrap up in a snark and use inside of a snap. Now I kind of want to go back to the concept you brought up, Emre, this idea of bridges. And I know bridges is like a key part of like Mina's plans right now. But first of all, what bridges are there? Are there already live bridges or what bridges should we expect to see pretty soon? There aren't any live bridges today. They take a while to build. But um, we have announced a few um, initiatives. Um, The first one we announced a while back actually is a joint grant or an RFP with the Ethereum Foundation to build a essentially a full node bridge from Mina to Ethereum. Um, so this would include like a an efficient verifier of the Mina, Mina snark within EVM and um, you know everything else that comes with it. So the Mina Foundation has actually actually found and, and the Ethereum Foundation they found a you know a a developer to start working on this. Um, they they are going to announce it soon. Um, but so that's that's getting started on. And then it was also recently announced, thanks to the, I guess, the proliferation of EVM, right? Polygon also is going to um, leverage this bridge because, you know, they're basically able to reuse it very, very fast. And um, yeah, obviously we're in touch with other non-EVM layer ones as well because, um, you know, they're interested in the same functionality um, because it basically kind of opens the doors of Web 2.0 to to the dApps on their platform. So that's, that's a valuable use case. And um uh, we see bridges as, you know, the way where, you know, Mina is another layer one, but, you know, it should be able to talk to other layer ones um, if if we want to really enable this for developers, because as great as Mina is, other chains are great in other things. And we want to respect that and, and, and enable, enable everyone to do this. I want to now look at how the snap and, and I know you had just you had mentioned sort of a path for a snap over a bridge, but maybe we can just cover that again, because I. Like, I think you just mentioned it really, really quickly, but I want to explore that. Like, I'd love to, like, think of an example of what exists today on Ethereum using that bridge, a snap, and I guess bringing back that result. I sort of want to know how that would work because it, it, it's not necessarily like token exchange happening here, right? It's like data exchange across this bridge. Sure. So maybe just to, you know, explore more examples, um, let's say a Ethereum DAP again or you know, DeFi DAP wants to serve only users who can prove that they're not a resident of the U.S. I was going to do it the other way around, but no, <laughs> no app does that. <laughs> Nobody no does one welcomes that. U.S. users. Um, <laughs> thank you, SEC and others. Um, anyways, sorry. <laughs> um, and um, but they don't want to, you know, hold on to any of the user, like any of the PII, any of the uh, personally identifying information, because you know, data nowadays is a liability. So what can be done, thanks to snaps, is there can be a snap that basically leverages any KYC provider that this um, DeFi app trusts. Um, Let's say it's one of the crypto exchanges, right? Let's say it's Coinbase. And by using either Coinbase's APIs or or even just the web page itself, the snap can, um, like the user would have to log into their Coinbase account. And then the snap would basically um, guide them to the, the page or the API endpoint that shows that they have a verified KYC uh, with Coinbase. Um, and then it would generate a proof on the user's machine of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the user would also, by the way, all of this would happen in a nicely, you know, nice app with a nice UX. Nice but, UI. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and then the user would submit um, that proof via a transaction on Mina to a snap account um, that's set up to verify such proofs. Um, so you remember when, you know, as he was describing the struct, the architecture, um, these snap accounts are basically holding the verification key. And um, only if they receive a snap transaction with that proof that is able to be verified by that verification key. So by that circuit, do they update their state? Right. So let's assume it's true. It goes through and then the snap account updates its state to say this proof checks out. This basically what it does is like this address has a proof that says that they have access to a valid Coinbase account. Um, and you can you know, also like combine this with other conditionals, such as like, do they have access to a KYC account that also has a name, Emre Techishelp, right? So, so that I'm not grabbing someone else's you know, KYC data. And then this DeFi app in return is also monitoring the 
um, the smart contract that tracks the MENA state. Um, and because the SNAP account is associated with MENA's global state, that smart contract will also update its state, right? Because it's, it's checking the canonical MENA snark and it's getting the other, you know, the other information from the Merkle route. And then that DeFi app then can basically yeah, look at that smart contract and say, yep, the, the KYC has passed through or the user with this address who also happens to have this Ethereum address has access to a Coinbase KYC account with the name Emmerthekishop. So I'm going to I'm going to serve this person because they're not in the U.S. And then it gets executed on the Ethereum side. Yeah, everything else is happening on Ethereum, right? Or the host chain, like all the yeah. logic keeps happening there. Of course, you know, the other benefit of snaps, um, right, is that because computation is off chain, they're much cheaper, right? Um, so we do believe over time that, you know, hopefully these applications also see other benefits of MENA, both the succinctness as well as, you know, the, the cheaper um, computation cost similar to ZK rollups, right, um, on Ethereum, mm. and then decide to move their stuff over there, over to Mina. Um, but, you know, we don't want to burden folks with that decision because, um, yes, like Mina is new. There'll be many deficiencies compared to more mature ecosystems like Ethereum, but but we want to provide this benefit right away. So that's why uh, we see the, the, the concept of bridges here as very important. Are these bridges, this is a topic in general, I want to explore more, maybe in a whole, a whole episode, but this type of bridge, like the snark itself still lives on the snap side, right? The snark, or actually what you described, like, is there part of the snark, actually, I think you did say this, like the prover is sort of going over this bridge, right? Like there's, or the proof rather, the, there's a proof yeah. going over the bridge, but otherwise most of the snark lives on the snap. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So like, well, I guess the way that I would say it is like, there is the kind of Mina like super snark that basically, you know, verifying the Mina snark implicitly verifies like every single snark that has ever been posted to the Mina chain. So every execution of every snap and every snark involved in that snap that has ever happened, you know? Okay. So like what the bridge actually does is basically import the Mina like Uber snark into the host, you know, the other blockchain Okay. and verify it there. The Ethereum bridge, the way that it's going to be designed is basically, well, the Mina Uber snark will sort of be verified on the Ethereum blockchain, like in EVM, um, and that will kind of give access to all of the information that's already been verified on Mina. I see. Does that mean that is like the verification happening in the smart contract on Ethereum? The smart contract on Ethereum will just verify the Mina Uber snark. Uber snark, but the snap actually has the verifier of the, like the proof that the snap will actually ver or verify is the data part, like the thing you're trying to prove. And then that snap pushes something into the meta snark that is then verified on the Ethereum chain. Okay. So like, let's say you want to make an application that's like, you know, I, I want to build, uh, like I want to have a smart contract on Mina whose state is basically, you know, the set of all like GitHub users who have proven that they have, you know, have done a commit every day for the last year. I don't know, whatever. Okay. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, the way that that would work is you would make a snap on Mina that, you know, that has like a, it's a smart contract. It has like a, you know, a method that can be called on it, which is basically provide proof that, that I am a, you know, a super committer or whatever. Let's just call it being a super committer. So basically, people can interact with the smart contract by providing it with like, the cryptographic screenshot of like going to their GitHub and showing, hey, I committed every day for the last year. That will, you know, update some state on Mina, which basically records the set of all the users who have provided that kind of proof. And now after the user like gets their cryptographic screenshot, they'll like generate a, a snap proof, you know, by running the GitHub recorder smart contract snap locally. That will generate a proof that they'll submit to the Mina blockchain that will update the state on the Mina blockchain that of all the users who have proven their GitHub super committers. And then the Mina snark at that point, the Mina Uber snark, will implicitly you know, have within it the, the fact that uh, this set of GitHub users are all super committers. Mm. But you won't have to like go and verify all those old proofs. Those All those old proof verifications are encoded in the Mina Uber snark. And then on Ethereum, like you'd bring, you would just verify the Mina Uber snark, and that would also implicitly verify, you know, the correctness of the set of super committers referred to in the Mina state. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Except that, like, how does like on the Ethereum side, you're talking about the Meta snark, but the Meta snark also has within it all other snap activity and transaction activity. Like, 
there's a lot of things that have gone into that updated snark on the meta snark that the Ethereum side would then verify. But how, like, if it doesn't know the other stuff, how does it still know that just the GitHub data is correct? Maybe one other way to look at this could be that similar to like the Mina full node, like the generic full node, right? The way that's structured is there is the canonical proof, but there's also like what we mean when we say 22, which is also actually 11 kilobytes is like um, a full node for one account, right? So like Mm -hmm. you as a normal user, you usually want access to one account. And for that, you have the 11 kilobytes consists of the proof, the, the canonical proof, as well as the Merkle root and the Merkle branch to your own account and then certain other metadata that allows you to send transactions and sign transactions and whatnot, right? Um, similarly, in a bridge here, we haven't yet figured this out, but likely there will be one smart contract on Ethereum probably will be the Mina full node watcher, let's say, like that's just going to update each with each proof. And then there will be a sec- second smart contract that monitors the, the Merkle branch um, just for that specific SNAP account that you want, right? So that smart contract is going to update its state, basically, and make sure that the, the state it has is against, um, or the, its, its Merkle root is within or is compliant against the, the latest canonical proof. And then the, there will be a third smart contract, which is the actual DAP that you know wants to ingest this data. So it's going to ping both of those smart contracts and make sure um, that it it gets the data at once and, and it confirms that the data is from the latest state, which is guaranteed by the canonical proof. Okay, I think I understand this now. Awesome. Very, very cool. Where do you picture the builders living in this scenario? Do you picture a uh, snap builder, especially if they're like bridge users, would they be working on both sides of this bridge? Or do you actually imagine like snaps existing and then Ethereum dApps using or just interacting with those? I guess it depends, it, but it depends. We the way we see this is that um, a DAP developer on Ethereum or other chains will basically also develop their own snap, and that's why also right we wanted to go down the path of TypeScript because it's way more universal than anything else. Maybe barring Solidity because we're in the space, but you know what we mean. Um, such that you know it it's not too hard for a Solidity developer to pick it up and then basically deploy deploy their own snap on Mina. Um, and then leverage the bridge, right? Um, so yeah, we want it to be easy such that any any developer can pick it up. Cool. So I think we've covered snaps pretty well. I feel like I have a way deeper understanding on how they work, on how developers could potentially interact with them, maybe even how users could sort of understand how they're interacting with them. But where are we at with snaps, actually? Like, how far along is Mina to having snaps be live? I'm just curious a little bit about your roadmap. When, when can we expect snaps on the market? So the goal, okay, so there's like a few different pieces of the puzzle. There's like the support at the kind of bare protocol level, and then there's the developer tooling. So on the protocol level, the goal is to, you know, have them running in our next testnet in November. And on the developer tools level, we, you know, we have kind of the initial version of Snarky.js out there. We recently had a, a small workshop with developers um, starting to use it, and there was like really positive feedback. So that's really exciting. There's still some more work to be done on the tooling side before it's super ready, but, you know, that's kind of the current state of things. Um, yeah, so I guess the short answer, though, is like on the protocol side, it will, you know, inshallah, hopefully, be on the November release. It sounds a bit like soon TM. It's like, <laughs> I know it's always like a little scary to predict, but yeah. it, it sounds like you're close. So like maybe end of this year. Yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely one hope. We, you know, we hope we, we do have a good sense of how we're progressing after having been through many of this to launching mainnet. And this one feels good. So um, yeah, crossing our fingers. I mean, I think this is going to be a super cool like platform basically to start experimenting with some of these zero knowledge ideas that have been floating around for a while. Like I remember on a previous episode, you had shared actually this idea, Isaac, of being able to prove in closed source repos that some piece of code is in there. And like, the thing is, that was always amazing theoretically, like with a zero knowledge proof. But like, I personally didn't understand how you actually get from there to like, these blockchains that we're working on. And it sounds like with Snaps, you're bringing it, like that's the bridge. That's the thing. That's where you get to actually experiment and build these 
real zero knowledge cases and actually see, I guess, what works and what doesn't. Yeah, totally. Because like you need in order to like have zero knowledge be meaningful or whatever, like you need to have some meaningful data that you're keeping private, right? And until now, it, there's been definitely a, a lack of, of that. So I think it should unlock a lot of cool uh, applications. Cool. Well, I want to say a big thank you to both of you for coming on the show and exploring Snaps like in depth. This is kind of what I've been wanting to do for a while. I'm so glad I got a chance to do it. So yeah, thanks so much for being on here. Yeah, thank you for having us, Anna. Thanks, Anna. And I do want to mention that like this fall, actually, there's a, an event that the ZKV and the ZK podcast are actually putting together called ZK Hack. Mina, you folks are going to be a participant in this. So there will be a workshop, hopefully near the end of November-ish. And yeah, I guess it will be very exciting to see where you guys are at by then. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to start playing with these things. Yeah, we're, we're super excited to get in front of developers and um, yeah, really see, you know, what what the power of ZKPs um, allows in terms of creativity and, and new novel applications for crypto. I want to say thank you to the podcast editor, Henrik, the podcast producer, Tanya, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. <laughs>